Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset, seeking to learn from the leadership journey of changemakers and business insights from leading global thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited to be welcoming Mark C. Crowley. Mark had a successful career in the dog-eat-dog world of financial services. And after 20 plus years, he decided to study what happens inside of people to make them so committed to do extraordinary work. And that became the basis of his life's work from there on out. He is the author of Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. I really enjoyed the conversation with Mark as I learned why the heart matters more than many of us assume in leadership. I'm sure you will enjoy the conversation with Mark as well. I also love hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahanatmahantavakoli.com. There is also a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. When you get a chance, don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite app for the podcast. That way you will help more people find conversations such as the one with Mark and benefit from them as they become more impactful leaders. Now, here is my conversation with Mark C. Crowley. Mark C. Crowley, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Thank you, Mahan. It's a great pleasure. Can't wait to talk about Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. One of the first questions, Mark, I ask every one of my guests is about their upbringing and how it impacted them. I fell in love with your authenticity in describing your upbringing. Whereabouts did you grow up and how did your upbringing impact who you've become, Mark? So it's a really big question, and it doesn't stop when childhood ended. It actually had a (laughs) ripple. Late in life, I put all the pieces together. But I will say, I grew up in Garden City, Long Island, beautiful community. And for the first early years of my life, life was very good. But my mom suddenly got cancer, and she died. My family didn't tell me that she was dying, so I came home from school and found out that she had died. And it was obviously a massive, distressing shock. And this is not in the book, I don't think, but my father was actually having an affair with a woman that he ended up marrying after my mom died. And we knew about the affair, so it added to the trauma of my mom dying. And then my stepmother moved in. And from that point forward, it was about a year and a half from the time my mom died to the time that they married. But they were already together. And that neither one of them had any interest in supporting my well-being. In fact, my father explicitly tried very strongly to destroy my self-esteem. He emotionally and psychologically abused me for the rest of my childhood, fundamentally pulling the rug out from any stability that I would have, any belief in myself. And even to this day, my wife, just this morning, said, you've got to stop being so self-critical. And criticism is not a natural thing. So it's the last remnant, if you will, from how I grew up. I mentioned that only because he had a lasting impact on me. And then right at the time that I just graduated from high school, 
couple days after graduation, thinking that my dad, who was at this point a wealthy person and easily could have provided for me to go to college, instead he kicked me out of the house with no advance notice, like literally go, it's time for you to go. And there was no, let's go find a clean, safe home for you. Let me give you money for tuition. I'm certainly going to pay for your college. You're going to be safe and supported. None of it, Mahan. It was over in an instant. And so what ended up happening was I went into five of the most difficult years of my life. No question. Like it started with how do I survive? How do I just put one foot forward when you don't have a job and you have no money and you've just been kicked out and you know you can't go back? Fast forward, I will say that I figured that out. So I got a job and started to do well in that. So my father fundamentally told me that I would never amount to anything. And so I had this binary equation in my mind. I graduate from college by hook or by crook, and I prove them wrong. If I don't graduate from college, I'm the abject failure he always told me I was going to be. Well, when you cut your legs out from under you and you don't have any financial support and all that, and just every morning you're getting up wondering how you're going to eat and all that kind of stuff and pay the rent, the first two years of school, they probably should have kicked me out, really, because I was just not equipped to do it. But I went and they did enough and somehow managed to, and I got into a rhythm and I ended up doing very well. Like I did very well in my job and it just became this routine. I did well in school. So now I've graduated. And... I'm looking around at the people that I've graduated with. So like in the weeks leading up to graduation, I'm asking people what they're going to do. Oh, I'm going to med school. Oh, I'm going to law school. Oh, I'm going to grad school. I'm going to Harvard. And I'm thinking, I'm just lucky to have survived this. More importantly, I didn't feel worthy of going further. I thought that I was lucky to have graduated, not that I had worked to earn the graduation, that I easily could have gone off to graduate school. So I still had this self-doubt, but now I go off to manage people, and this is where my life really changed in a positive way. I unconsciously decided, when I'm looking at these people that are going off to Harvard and Yale and Columbia, and I'm just thinking I better go get a job, I started to think about, well, what was the difference between them? And me. Like, why did they feel confident to go out and do these things? And I'm feeling so unconfident. And I realized that I lacked a whole lot of things. After my mom died, I had no one who really fundamentally loved me, but certainly no one who cared about me, encouraged me, gave me appreciation when I did well. Hey, great job on your exam. Oh, you got an A on your paper. Great job. Oh, you're doing well at work and you're doing all this. Magnificent. I had none of that. And I never felt safe, Mahan. That was the big thing. For five years, I felt a flat tire is going to keep me from going to school. And how am I going to pay for it? So it's always under this level of fear. So the pivot that I made unconsciously was to give people who work for me everything that I always wanted, believed I needed, that could have influenced me to have thrived in my life and to have been infinitely more successful. So without having any conscious awareness, I just blindly went out there and managed people by giving them all these things. And every team that I'm managing is like killing it. <laughs> I keep getting all these promotions. My company just goes, you're doing great. We want to give you this. And after a while, they gave me such a big job. I was like, are you crazy? Do you know who you're dealing with? And they were like, no, we see your potential. And so in my early 40s, somebody who worked for me told me, and this is a punchline. She goes, you realize... You manage people very differently than anybody else I know, right? Particularly your peers. 
And I said, what do you mean? And I think I was just beginning to realize this. And she started to give me a list of the things that I was doing. And it was at that point that I realized I did all of this in response to my childhood. Like the fantasy was, I didn't get it, believe that it would have made me infinitely more successful. What if I give it to people and let's see what happens to them? So of course, people just completely thrived under my leadership, like really thrived and beat a path and outperformed everyone. It was like win, win, win. And it was only then, I think I was like 43 years old when I started to realize, wait a minute, like all of this actually had a payoff for me. All this pain and suffering that I went through yielded an understanding of how to manage people that you couldn't get any other way. And so that's my childhood story. What an incredible story, Mark, and the fact that you used that hurt and that pain to put more good out into the world. Sometimes people get stuck in a cycle that is a negative one. You put out more good in the world. But the surprising thing is you were in the financial services industry. The managers and others around you must have thought you were crazy. You know what? It's interesting because I'll tell you what happened. So I go away. So I'm working at this point. My last position was sales manager for investments. So these are brokers, stockbrokers, investment brokers. These people, they make money off of sales. They don't get a salary. So they're meat eaters. That's what I was taught. And so I ended up managing these people very successfully. My first year, we had record revenue, record profit. I was named leader of the year. But the thing is that no one ever looked under the hood. Like they didn't know what I was doing. It's a feeling. My thesis is all about feelings, right? So no one knew what I was doing. They just knew that I was getting good results. So I come out with a book two years later after I leave from the time that took me to conceive it, write it, and get it published and out there. And I think people were like, what happened to him? Did he have a breakdown or a religious experience? <laughs> so around the time, this woman, her name was Cecilia. She's the one who had worked for me for about 20 years and then just casually said, you manage people very differently. Around the time that she made this statement to me, the CEO of the company said, I want to pick the future leaders of this company. So I want 30 people from 50,000 people. I'm going to take them to Hawaii and spend time with them. So we do this. I'm one of the 30 people. So this is a huge honor. So I go, my wife and I are there. It happens to be Fat Tuesday. So what's going on here? We're in Hawaii, but we're having a Mardi Gras theme. And there's guys on stilts and fire. And so we all get a drink and we're walking around and we're all going to these different little sections. And two of the sections, the first one that I went to was a palm reader. And she said, the long line, parties, music's going. It's a very festive thing. This is just like a fun thing to do. So I give her my palm. She looks at it and she goes, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, isn't that obvious? Don't you know who we are? Like, we're all <laughs> bankers, right? We're all financial services people. So she goes, tell me what you do. I go, I'm a banker. And that's how I define myself at this point, which was not really true. But I think I'm more of a leader and I could have taken that anywhere. But that's just happened where I grew up. So she looks at my palm and she goes, no, this is not for you. You're not a banker. She goes, you're going to have a big change. You're not a banker. You never were a banker. And now this is provocative, right? Because I'm understanding my power at this point. And I found that very interesting. So we go on, we see the guys on the stilts and the jugglers, and we're talking to other people. And we find our way to the tarot card reader. She does the tarot cards. She throws out three cards, 
where I'm, she says, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a banker. Like I still had that answer. And she's <laughs> giving me the no, no answer. And so now I'm looking at her, like looking to see if she's got like a walkie talkie to the palm reader. Cause I think they're in cahoots giving everybody the same answer. I was very cynical. I said, are you talking to the palm reader? And she's like looking at me like, are you out of your mind? There's 25 people lined up waiting for her. You think I'm having a conversation with her? She goes, they're your cards. She goes, all I'm telling you is this isn't your life. You were never meant to have this life. You're going to have a totally different life. And of course, my life fundamentally changed about two years later. And so I found that really interesting that I got the tip off from these two people that were hired to entertain us at a party in wine. And you were able to focus on giving back through sharing your thoughts on leading from the heart. Now, one of the things in reading your book, Mark, and listening to some of your conversations, I wonder, is that, is it the fact that you went through the experience, that upbringing and the success in financial services with leading from the heart that enabled you to lead from the heart or can people learn it? Sometimes we end up becoming capable of doing things based on the life experiences and based on the perspectives we got from those life experiences. Can this be taught? Absolutely can be taught. I think we have to start with the premise that it feels foreign to people. So let's say, for example, that you and I, we're in the pizza business. We own pizza restaurants and you're a pizza manager and you're the guy who can take the dough and throw it up in the air and you make magnificent pizzas and you can make a million of them in an hour. And you're like the star pizza store manager. So I'm the CEO and I'm looking at our revenues and I'm like, people are eating less pizza and they're eating more chicken. So we're going to become a chicken store. We're going to start selling fried chicken, barbecued chicken. You're the star pizza man. And now I'm going to say, you need to learn how to make chicken and you need to get good at it. How do you feel? You feel vulnerable, right? You're like, wait a minute, I'm giving away all of my expertise. I'm giving away all the talent and all the mastery that I've achieved. And now I'm going to look vulnerable because I'm being asked to do chicken and maybe somebody's better at chicken than me. All of these fantasies that go through our mind. So what we do is guy comes in and he goes, hey, what's good here? And you go, pizza. You don't even talk about the chicken. We're going to do everything we can to just keep going with the old. And I don't know when it's going to happen when companies are basically going to say, like, stop introducing the pizza and start introducing the chicken. But until that happens, we have to do it ourselves. So what I'm really saying is that we've never really encouraged these behaviors. So anybody who's saying this feels uncomfortable or I don't know if I'm going to blow it, you're in the same world everybody else is. What I'm saying is that we now know through science that it works more effectively than squeezing people and paying them as little as possible, which is traditional leadership theory. So be willing to let that go and just naturally care about people, find ways to care about people and let your own heart take you there. But be willing to experiment with it, knowing that the more you demonstrate to people that you authentically care about them, that they can feel that and they'll reciprocate. That's the way it works. So a good manager would say, hey, we're not getting out of the pizza business. We're just getting into the chicken business. 
So we're not taking anything away from you that you have already gotten good at. You might be good at budgets or you might be great at running meetings. We're not saying throw all that away. We're saying add chicken to the menu, become more of a balance between heart and mind. So the answer is yes, but you have to be open to it. You can't resist it. And you can't wait and look around and go, he's not doing it. She's not doing it. So I'm not doing it. You have to say, I don't really care whether they're doing it. I know this is the right thing. And I'm going to do it within my team and hope the rest of the world catches up with me. And by the way, that's what I did my entire career. So Cecilia's point was no one around you manages like this. And that's fine. I had my very first person that I ever worked for manage me that way. And then I never saw it again, but that didn't keep me from managing that way. Like I'm getting the whips and the bruises and I'm taking that. So I'll take all those hits and I'm going to manage people the way I want to. And my whole career and the success that I got is defined by managing people in the very way that I'm prescribing. I love that point, Mark, because I hear a lot of times people say in my organization, It's not possible in my industry. It's not possible. The CEO doesn't lead this way. Your point is whatever level you are at, you do have control over your own behaviors and you can lead this way. Now, one of the things I wonder about, Mark, is that I wonder if we also need to change the types of people we celebrate. And with all due respect to some of the outlier entrepreneurs, the Elon Musks of the world or the Steve Jobses of the world that I really think are outliers. Some of the people that are being celebrated at least don't seem to be very heart-centered leaders. No, it's a great observation. Let's go back 20 years ago. And you went up and you asked managers, what are some of the worst things you could do to limit your success as a manager? They would almost chapter and verse lay out everything that I'm saying is actually the right thing to do. So first thing is don't get close to your people. They'll abuse you. They'll take advantage of you. The more that you care about people, they're going to come in and ask for a raise or they're going to demand something that you can't give them. They're going to punish you for being caring. And not only that, but you know what? The more time you spend with people coaching and developing them, the risk is they're going to try to take your job. You've now taught them everything. So Now we're saying, no, it's actually the opposite. The more you care, the more you know, the more you understand, the more you support, the greater, actually, interestingly, the more demanding you can be, the higher expectations you can make, so you're going to get your results. But it just feels so uncomfortable for people. And we're also in a world that has to shift in the sense that companies, corporations, publicly traded companies are principally driven by shareholders. So if you're a sales manager, let's say you manage 30 salespeople, and you're halfway through the month and you're nowhere near hitting your goals. And then you start going up and down the aisles and you start going, hey, Bill, you want to have a job at the end of the month? Make your goal. Hey, Jill, you want to stay working here? I need a little more from you because this isn't going to cut it and I'll find somebody better for you. And then you get your numbers, you come in at 110%, you go into a meeting and they're like, what no. And you've just <laughs> brutalized your entire team. They hate your guts and they want to leave. And the fear motives that you use definitely worked, but ultimately they do harm. It's unsustainable. So the other thing that you've hinted at is that if we know that caring is the common denominator of the leader that I'm describing, 
then we need to start hiring people who have demonstrated an interest in growing people, supporting people, actually thriving in the success of other people. So the interesting thing that happened to me was I'm managing people in this instinctive way and I'm getting routine success. I just keep getting promoted. So I'm never questioning what other people are doing. I took not even a 30 second glance to see what other people were doing. I just assumed the way I was managing was successful. And that's probably what everybody else was doing. Naive, but that's what I was thinking. And as I started to look at what I was doing, in retrospect, I realized that every time somebody who worked for me, let's say somebody said, I've got to take an exam and I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can learn this. This is too hard. So I said, okay, so let me help you. Give me some of the information that you're struggling with. So I'm helping them with that. And I'm encouraging them. I'm saying, look, I've been working with you for two years. You're very smart. You're going to pass this exam. I know you are. And so go take the day off. Uh, go study and go take the exam. So they come back and they go, I, I did it. I passed the exam. The joy that I had because I knew that I had influence in their success was no less than theirs because it healed me. It was on some level deep down. You were right. You were right. You missed it. You didn't get it. But if you give it to other people, look what happens to them. So it was just joyful for me. Not everybody's like that. Now, I was like that for my whole life experience, and who knows if that's my purpose or what have you, but there are plenty of people who get into management roles for the money or the prestige, the power or the title, and they don't really care about other people. In fact, they end up competing with their people. Like all of a sudden, Mahan's getting a little recognition here. I'm going to step on his toes a little bit because he's getting too big for his shoes here. He's going to try to get my job. I'm not going to let that bastard do this to me. So... That's a totally different orientation. So in an interview, so you're interviewing and I say to you, Mahan, tell me, have you ever helped somebody specifically who worked for you grow from the position you hired them into and saw them either promoted into a bigger and better role, more challenge, more responsibility, either because you gave it to them or because someone else did? Can you say you did this? Everybody's going to go, of course, of course, Mark. That's what I do. <laughs> and then you say, okay, so great. Mahan, give me a couple of examples. Tell me their name. What was their jobs? And tell me what you did specifically. And now it's like, oh, there was Mary. And it's game over because they don't have the story to tell. And if I really truly believe if companies would just do that, because you're going to look for... Do you have the competency? Do you have the technical knowledge? Whatever else you're going to be looking for, you're going to ask those questions. This question just happens to isolate the people who it's all about them from the people that it's all about other people. And if you're going to manage people, you have to make it about them, like a coach. Coaches don't jump in the fourth quarter and go, I'm quarterbacking the team here for the next three minutes here because we're down by three points. I'm going to score a touchdown. They teach the quarterback and they teach the players how to play and they rely on them. It's a totally different orientation and they thrive when they succeed. And that's the migration I think we ought to be making. Mark, the interesting thing is people could have gotten away and did get away with treating their people like robots in the industrial age without caring for them, just looking for what this robot can produce. As things have shifted in organizations and the value of collaboration, the creativity of the individuals has become a lot more important, it's even more essential 
for leaders to be heart-centered leaders and be able to connect with their teams in leading them forward. Part of it is the right thing to do, but also as the world of work has shifted, it's the only way to be able to tap into that collaborative power of individuals in teams moving forward. I agree with you. But here's the thing. None of this comes easy. To be a mensch, if you will, I don't know what the feminine version of mensch is, but feminine mensch, kidding. <laughs> but to really be an effective manager, you've got to be awfully secure in yourself. You've got to have that ability to understand how to form collaboration and teams that look out for each other. It takes a while. You know that I wrote this book originally 11 years ago. And the new book is twice as long, and it's just filled with more validation for the original book. I didn't write the second book and go, here are the things I got wrong. I wrote, everything I wrote 11 years ago is true, but here's more validation for why it's true, because apparently you need it. So what I really believed was that CEOs were going to read this, and they were going to see the science, and they were going to see how compelling it was, and realize that we've actually been mismanaging human resources, people, for 100 years. So let's teach everybody how to do this. Instead, they were like, well, I got to the top by managing like Machiavelli. Why do I have to change? And then, by the way, it sounds soft and I don't want people managing in a soft way because I'm afraid I'm not going to hit my numbers. So they just basically said, leading from the heart, that's total bullshit. Even if they didn't express it, that's what they said. So that was a big surprise to me because I thought, well, it's your job as a CEO to be looking for any information that would lead you to managing better. So you get a new book, you get new research and you go, let's use this. Microsoft is using um, growth mindset, Carolyn Dweck's work. Like they took that and they said, we're going to use it to leverage our success in our company. I thought this was going to happen and it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because of fear. So now what's happening is that over the last 70, 80 81 million people since January of 2021, 81 million people in America have quit. And why would that happen? So people are like, if I'm not happy here, I'm not sticking around. Money isn't going to be the reason to keep me in a lot of cases. So I think what's happened is, is rather than CEOs seeing the science and saying, I'm going to lead us across the river here into a new, more successful world, they pushed back and said, no. But now they're saying, what are we going to do to stop people from quitting? Because we're not finding them fast enough to replace them. And when we replace them, they don't come in with any of the knowledge that they had. So you work for a company for three or four years. You know how to get things done, the culture. Bring in somebody else and all of a sudden another person and another person, they may be hardworking, talented, motivated people. But if they don't know what they're doing, they have understanding, you're going to slow things down. And I think that's what's happening in organizations. So people are looking at this, not for the reasons that I thought, but for reasons that are basically <laughs> forcing them into it. So resistance has definitely been a part of it, Mark. People have succeeded and they want to keep with the practices that help them succeed and move up into organizations rather than change their approach and take on a heart-centered approach. One of the other challenges that I see oftentimes is that many of the executives that at least I have worked with and coached 
they believe they are more heart-centered than they actually <laughs> might be. So there are very big blind spots. So I can imagine, and one of my challenges to everyone listening to the podcast is, yes, my podcast listeners are very heart-centered. That's why they listen to the podcast. That said, challenge it and don't go with that assumption. So my question to you is, I wonder... How can we reduce our blind spots and not assume that we are the heart-centered leaders and it's the others that need to change their leadership approach? Oh, man, it's such a big question and it's a big challenge. An employee of a company came to me and said, crying, basically, you've got to help us. And so she went to her boss and said, from my point of view, I talked to enough people in this company that we're unhappy. People are really unhappy. And so could we just do like a climate survey? So the guy called me and said, I'm really concerned about this. And I think she's right. What would you do? And I said, first thing I want to do is just take the pulse. Give me 25 people to talk to randomly at all levels of the organization. And I've never seen, other than perhaps Walmart, maybe the last five or six years ago, never seen a culture this bad seriously they were intentionally underpaying people cutting benefits and then demanding that they do very challenging work emotionally draining work and doing nothing from an appreciation standpoint so i came away like you need to accept that the way you're managing unless that's who you are like if that's who you intend to be where you're just exploiting people and you don't care and just find somebody else when they leave if you really want to fix this you've got to have to change your approach and so they were very leery about me i don't know what we're going to do and i don't know how we're going to share this with the ceo and i said well, i'll share it with him so we sent it to him he read it and i ended up having an hour-long conversation and he goes you know what mark he goes i don't buy it I don't buy it at all. <laughs> I couldn't believe what he said. He goes, I send them an email on their birthday every single year. I have it in my computer. So I'll send out, hey, Bill, happy birthday from CEO XYZ. And he goes, and I think that changes people's lives. And I knew the game was over. I just said, has your life ever been changed by a birthday card, even a birthday gift? If somebody got you exactly what you wanted, did that change your life? And he wasn't getting it. It was crazy. And so I predicted people would end up leaving. And of course they did. And I think they were bummed that I wasn't able to come in and be the savior, but there was just no saving this company. But I think the answer to your question is ask people, Go up to people and say, hey, if I could become more effective as your manager, is there one thing that you can point to? I wrote about this in my book. I used to do this. So I'd say, Mahan, you've been working for me for a year. What's something that I do really well as a manager? You're going to go, oh, Mark, you're the greatest. Jay should write a book about you. And maybe even a movie. You're such a great manager. And I go, oh, great. Thank you. But is there something that I do? Oh, there's so many things. And I go, well, just give me one. So they go, you appreciate people. And I go, okay, great, thank you. And then I wait, and then I go, hey, Han, I'm trying to grow and develop, and what I'd really appreciate is if you could tell me one thing that I don't do well or could do better. Like, what's something that I need to learn to become more effective at? Oh, no, Mark, remember I told you that you're the greatest. <laughs> and I go, well, I know, but you've given me one good thing, so now 
with my permission, just give me something, one thing that I might want to work on. And then it turns out they have a dagger in their pocket and they jab it into you. <laughs> you never do this and you never do this. And it's like, I said, I just wanted one. <laughs> and the point is they know your flaws. They're watching you all the time. And not only that, but they're like talking to their side buddies and going, Mark never does this. Does he do this for you? I hate that he doesn't do this. And so you can have this fester over here with people being miserable because you never do it. Or you can find out what it is that they don't like and fix it. So I remember the first time I did this, it was very painful because it feels good to go, they're going to make a movie about you. And I go, really? Great. <laughs> Got anything bad for me? Yeah. You never do this. And you could feel the pain. Like they were bummed that I, they were upset. They were hurt that I wasn't doing these things. So I wrote them all down. I had 30 people working for me. And I went back to my meeting with them. And I said, hey, I met with you all. I had a little process. I got a lot of nice compliments, but I also got 30 things I need to work on. And I read them all off. And they were shocked that I would display that I don't show them enough attention, that they don't get enough time with me. So if you're open to it, it's the greatest growth you can possibly get because people are basically giving you a prescription. If you fix this, you will be someone that I'm grateful to. You'll be happy in my mind, basically, is what they're saying. So I've done this my whole career. I still do it. Even I'll get an article and I'll go, if I could have done anything better on this, what would it have been? And sadly, people have feedback for you. <laughs> Mark, what an outstanding practice and a practical way for us to reduce our blind spots. We all have blind spots, you and me included, for us to reduce our blind spots and with transparency, show people that it's okay to be flawed and to be working on ourselves as they are working on themselves. So I would really encourage my listeners this week, this is not something to put off. This week, ask for that feedback. What am I doing so great? And you gave a perfect example where people tend to give these generalities and how wonderful you are, a specific, and what can I improve on? which they tend to say are outstanding, but get a specific thing that you can work on. Your reaction to it shows people whether you're genuinely open or not. What I loved about your example is your transparency in sharing with the team, this is what I heard from you, makes them more likely on an ongoing basis, first of all, to open up to you and reduce your blind spots, but also solicit it themselves. Leadership is example you set the kind of example that others need to also set for their teams in the organization. And that's what culture is all about. I completely agree with you. And the thing is, that if you don't do this exercise, then you're going to continue with the blind spots and they're going to become bigger blind spots or bigger limitations. And then you're going to apply for a promotion and you're not going to get it. And then they're going to go, everybody knows that you have this problem and you haven't fixed it. And until you fixed it, we're not giving you anything to go further. And you're like, oh man, had I known I could have fixed it. So I think you just have to look at leadership as a journey. I made a lot of mistakes, but I learned from those mistakes. And then I went on and made different mistakes. And, and so you learn from those. So if you tell people, I'm on a journey to become a great leader, I haven't arrived. In fact, there's no arrival. There's no permanent destination. I'm always evolving. 
then people give you the benefit of a doubt if they think that you're open to learning and open to feedback. We all have our styles. We all have our personalities. Some of that good, some of that not so good. But if people can get beyond our styles and our personalities, but see us change our practices in response to feedback, they'll put up with any idiosyncrasies that we have, whatever it is. Beautifully stated. Now, the other thing that I didn't know before reading your book, Mark, is that you looked into the science of heart. I always used it as a metaphor. Yeah, people have this fantasy that what I'm saying is it's all heart. And so get rid of the mind and go all heart. And I'm saying, no, the thing is that we have two forms of intelligence leading into your question. One is the heart, one is the mind. And I'm not saying get rid of the mind, the brain. I'm not saying that. I'm saying bring the heart into it because the heart informs you in a different way. So right now you're flying with one propeller and I'm giving you another propeller. That's a better way of looking at it. So when people say heart-centered, I think people conflate that with weakness and softness and then it's a dead-on arrival. All I'm saying is get the two in balance. You got to do data. You've got to do your analysis. You have to write up performance reviews. You've got to hold people accountable for deadlines. That's all brain stuff. The heart stuff is supporting people as human beings and all the things that I wrote about. I love that you highlighted that because actually one of the challenges that I'm seeing in some of the organizations that I work with, including some of the CEOs that I'm coaching, is they have a hard time with holding people accountable. In some instances, they do well on the heart fronts, but they need to do better on the mind front. So I like the fact that you framed it as two propellers in that it's a balance, not only going with the mind, adding the heart and the heart center to that mind center that has been such a big focus for so many years. So go back 11, 12 years ago, before the first book came out. So this was 12 years ago. I had begun the process of organizing what was going to become the first book. And I had my piles. And actually, now that you've read it, you know that there are four leadership practices. And that was going to be the book. Like literally, if you do all these four things, aggregate them, do them all consistently, you're going to get great performance out of people consistently. That was the book. So I'm having a conversation with a friend who is checking in on me, a guy that I used to work with, former senior vice president that was my peer at the last company that I worked at. And so he's asking me where I am. And I go, just about ready to write, ready to start doing it. And he goes, you're going to explain why it works, right? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, (laughs) I know, you can see where this is going. And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, People are going to think you needed a really shitty childhood in order to lead this way. You're going to have to explain why it would work for other people. It's obvious it worked for you, but maybe people are going to think it worked for you because you just had weird life and that's how it worked. But how is it universal? So I started thinking, okay, I know he's right. Pissed me off. I'm like, okay, (laughs) I hadn't even given that any thought. And So I start thinking about what is it that I was doing? What was the impact of this? Why did people scale mountains for me? And sitting exactly where I am, looking out, thinking about this, all of a sudden it hit me that I was affecting the hearts of people. That's what I was doing. 
So at the end of the day, I went in and told my wife, I go, I've wasted 10 months of my life because the people that I used to work <laughs> with, are going to hear heart leadership or whatever I was going to call it. And they were going to, what happened to him? This is ridiculous. Nobody does that. And so I'm thinking he's triggered me into quitting is what my mindset was in the moment. So I told my wife and she goes, didn't you already prove it? Like you already know it's true. So can't you go find something that would support it? So it was that combination, those two conversations that forced me into 14, 15 months of additional research, all for the purpose of addressing the cynic going, this is bullshit, this isn't right. So I had to go back and say, see, look at this, look at this piece of information, look at this. So I was really trying to prove my case. And I'm doubling down on that in the new book. There's just so much compelling, interesting information that validates this. But the big piece was, how do I validate the heart? Like, how do I validate that? So the long and short of it is that I found a world-class cardiologist, cardio surgeon, and wrote her a letter and said, this is my thesis. I think I've been affecting the hearts of people. And that's what motivated them to do great work for me. Is there any truth in this? And she happened to be in my hometown and scheduled an appointment. I walked into her office and she said, Mr. Crowley, you're figuring out something we're just beginning to figure out in medicine. And I had tears coming down my eyes. I didn't know what she was going to tell me. I just knew she was going to validate my whole life. And she went on to tell me that what you figured out is we're figuring out. We've always believed the heart was just a pump, but now we're finding that intelligence is distributed through the body, that the heart and the mind are in constant communication with one another, that feelings and emotions are affecting human behavior much more than we realize. I've subsequently learned up to 95% of our decisions and choices are made by feelings and emotions, not by rational thinking. And so I'm the only person, as far as I know, at least that's not a disciple, if you will. Someone who's read the book and go, wow, that's interesting. I'm on board. I'm saying anybody who's suddenly saying heart-led leadership, nobody is saying that this is real. They're saying it's a metaphor. And so that's why the word heart is in the title, not to take punches or confuse people or delay embracement, which I had paid a woman $10,000 as she told me I was going to fail if I continue to use it. But I did it because I'm trying to make a point that it's science, it's human nature, it's not mythology, and it's not a metaphor, it's real. So if you care about people and it's authentic, they feel that and they reciprocate. And when they reciprocate, it's in the spirit of, Mahan cares about me so much that I want to do something great for him. And that inherently motivates their behavior to do something really great. And this is how leaders get great results. That really resonated with me. There are two things that connected the message and made it a lot more memorable and valuable for me. Part of it was your own origin story. And part of it was the science that is behind the heart and the value of leading from the heart. Now, I wonder, Mark, most of our conversation has been about the individual's role. How can organizations have the kind of culture that promotes leading from the heart more so than most cultures have done, at least in behavior? Our language has evolved a lot in leadership over the past 10, 15 years. Almost everyone that stands up in front of the room, every CEO, executive says the right things, the behaviors and the culture in the organization don't always match the language. So how can the culture of the organization 
be shaped in a way where it promotes more leading from the heart? So this is a really good question. And I didn't come from an HR background. I know I've got a large Twitter following in my podcast, obviously has a big audience. So I have to believe that there are HR people listening. But I'm on any day now, the Gartner, I was on their podcast, and this is like a classic HR organization. So I answered these questions. This is such a great question. And I think what happens is that what I think you have to do is you have to say, we're going in a different direction. That's first thing. Just directionally, we're changing. And the kind of management that we're going to aspire to, you're not going to change the company overnight. You can't mandate, okay, start being caring for your people. That would be a stupid move and backfire. No one would think it was real. And it would actually propel the company backwards by 20 years if you did that. If you said, this is where we want to go. So True North is the managers that we believe are effective are ones who know how to drive performance without harming their people. In fact, they get performance by caring about people. That's true north. That's who we want you to be. So then you start to give them information, give them books, you bring in speakers, people who can talk to this. And then you start recognizing it. So once a quarter, you start to say, here are the managers who are embodying the new way, the true north award right? So Mahan, you've picked it up. You're doing great. Your people love you. So now Mahan gets the award. I don't get the award and I don't like not getting the award. So I'm going to try to become more like Mahan. So you do it with carrots. You don't do it with sticks. The very same way you try to drive performance is you don't do it with fear. You just say, this is where we want to go. And then you start recognizing people and you, and then you start making the recognition meaningful. So Mahan gets promoted over Mark because three times in a quarter, he's been recognized. Everybody knows he's managing this way. Mahan gets the promotion. So now I'm like, if I don't evolve and if I don't adapt, then I'm not going to succeed here. The other is, we talked about this, which is starting to hire people who embody this. So if I'm in a company and I don't have anybody managing like this, but I hire you And you've demonstrated to me that your whole career, you've managed this way. Now you're coming in and you're demonstrating a couple of things. One is the company hired you. So you must have style that we like. So this is the model that we're looking at. And the other is that every time somebody leaves, you're replacing them with somebody who has the new way. So you're accelerating that process. And the final thing that I would do, and no one's ever taken me up on this, But I would start to do two things. One is measure turnover by manager. Not turnover because they got promoted, although that would be a cool thing to measure because some people develop people more and it'd be great to recognize them. But the people that are losing people, who is it? And how consistent is it? Because I really believe that turnover is a reflection of the manager. And if people are leaving, it's because they don't like that person. The other thing that I would do is once a quarter, do a quick survey. You get an email. Hello, Mahan. This is Human Resources. We have one question for you. It's totally anonymous. Would you recommend your manager, Mark Crowley, to other employees in our company? Yes or no? And then you track those and you start to look at this. And first thing you do is you start to go, okay, 
we need to figure out what's going on with the nose, right? Why not? So then you go back to those same employees and say, if you don't mind, there was a high percentage of people that said, no, we want to understand why. So could you share some of your opinions? And you can start coaching people or you help them move out. You do these things and you can change your culture really quickly. I love the examples that you shared, Mark. The people and behaviors that we celebrate indicate a lot of what the values for the organization are. If we just celebrate the people that bring in the most amount of money, regardless of how they behave, then people see that's what's important, regardless of and what that the values don't matter. is. Exactly. And just the quick check that you're talking about makes a big difference in looking at where the issues are and how you can support leaders on their journey. Now, there's a lot more we can talk about. We just touched briefly on the surface of some of your thoughts, but would love to know, are there any other resources in addition to your bookmark that you typically find yourself recommending? Funny, but one of my pet peeves, which I'm going to violate here in a minute. So I'll post an article that I've just written on dinners, taking hours and hours to put this out there. And then someone will post, oh, I wrote something about this and promoting in a way that's really not there for them. It's a little tacky. But honestly, in response to your question, but I get a lot of people asking to be on my podcast. And when I tell them no, they stop following me or you can tell they like hate me now. So it's heartbreaking, right? But part of the reason that I have to turn down a lot of people is because I hand curate, if you will, I'm hand picking the people that I've had on my podcast. And the reason I'm recommending this is because the reason that I'm picking them is because their work in some meaningful, important way validates the thesis. You don't have time to read 100 books. I've read all 100 guest books, every single one of them. And like you, I'm thoroughly prepared and have great questions. And so if you're wondering how to do this, you can marinate in it by listening to these conversations because A, I'm a master of it. Like I've done it my whole life, so I know it and I've researched it. So it comes naturally to me. But the people that I'm having on are Harvard Business School, Wharton Business School, Bill George, who's a former CEO of a major technology firm, who's a fellow at the Harvard Business School, 80 years old, is one of the best-selling leadership books of all time, True North. These are people that are offering insights. So I would say start there. And then if you're reading about them, you can read their books and see what they have to say. This is a shameless plug for my podcast, but that's on your podcast. So I'm violating all kinds of rules, but that's my not, not at all, Mark. <laughs> I mentioned it at the very beginning that I love your podcast and you do a great job with it in that I also appreciate the fact that you read the books. One of the first things when I was launching a podcast, I said, I will never ever have an author and ask them, so what is your book about? (laughs) It's curate people whose work, whose book you really appreciate, and you want to have a conversation with them based on a full understanding. The point is not to do a book summary. As people are interested, they go read the book. The point is to get the insights from this human being who has put their life effort 
into writing the book. And I think you do an outstanding job with that. So it's a great recommendation. Mark, how best can the audience connect with you and find out about your book and your work? So when I first came out with the book, I wanted to have leadfromtheheart.com and then somebody had that. So then I wanted to have markcrowley.com and somebody had that. So then I became markccrowley.com because my middle name is Christopher. So I became markccrowley.com. And right after I established that and put it out there, I got a notice that leadfromtheheart.com was available. So I bought that. So either way, markccrowley.com. And if you forget my name, leadfromtheheart.com takes you to the same place. I'm on Twitter at Mark C. Crowley. I'm on LinkedIn, Mark C. Crowley. So you can find me. And of course, the book is sold on Amazon. I think the cheapest price and the fastest delivery is Amazon, but any bookstore, any online bookstore too. Thank you for that. It's an outstanding book. However, as a fan of also your podcast, I can't let you go, Mark, without a little nod to your podcast, Heartbeat Round. So it's not exactly aligned with the type of questions you ask, but I do want to ask a series of short questions. Who keeps you honest so you lead from the heart, Mark? My wife, she literally will say to me, that's not very lead from the heart. And I would love to tell you that's once a year I hear that from her, but it's more like <laughs> once a day. <laughs> she definitely keeps me honest. That's what a good partner does. My wife does the same thing. They keep us grounded and focused. That's wonderful. So what's your biggest challenge in leading from the heart? I think we talked about that too. It's getting people to suspend their disbelief and ask questions about what I mean, as opposed to just dismissing it because it's easy to do that. Mark, what is something about leadership you've changed your mind about recently? It's interesting because the answer is complicated. So I believed when companies started opening up offices after two years of COVID, and a lot of people were like, hey, I like having breakfast with my kids, and I like spending extra time with my spouse, and I like walking around in my pajamas and working whenever I want to. I like all that. I don't want to give that up. So... I had the opinion that wasn't going to be good for us, that working from home permanently full-time was a bad thing. And I wrote an article about it and I suffered. It was a Fast Company article and I got a lot of people calling me a corporate shill, like I was advocating for CEOs who wanted people back. I was basically saying the heart needs connection, like human beings need connection. And so I said it with a firm belief in it. But what's interesting is that there's just been so much more that's come out that's maybe even more convinced, like the worst thing that we can do. I just had a gentleman named Jeff Cohen. He's a psychologist for Stanford University, and he wrote a book about belonging. And one of his conclusions, it's not his conclusion, but he's aggregated research that shows that like one of the single worst thing you can do, like smoking two packs a day of cigarettes, the equivalent of that is being lonely, is not having connections. And so people come back to me and go, I'm with my family and I'm with my, I'll see my friends. And I'm like, no, you're 40 hours alone on Zoom calls. You can't make up the interactions that you have with the guy in the hall or the guy in the cafeteria or the people that come into your meetings. Those are many connections and they add up to human thriving. So I've become more convinced that the idea of remote work might be an idea that sounds good, but just because it sounds good doesn't mean we should do it. 
It's interesting, Mark, because I think part of what has happened over the past 20 plus years, especially in the US, is that we have lost our connection to other organizations and groups that give us a sense of belonging, whether religious institutions or associations. Work for many of us became that place where we could connect with the humanity of other people. So I agree with you that there is a need for that that we all have. Now, the final one, Mark C. Crowley, what do you do for fun? I haven't had as much fun as I'd like to. And I think a lot of it has to do with just the fact that over the last year, I spent a lot of it writing the book, getting it published, and then promoting it and all that. So I've been working really hard. But I walk on the beach. I live near the beach. And so I get up every morning at 4.30. At 5 o'clock, I'm on the beach. And I walk for at least an hour by myself in the dark. And I cannot tell you how satisfying that is. I very rarely see people. If I do, it's on the way back. There's a quick handshake, no talking. And it's like a walking meditation. So it does may not sound like I'm having a party and a laugh, but it's been a real gift for me to have that. And when I can, I play golf with my son, but that's nowhere near as often as I'd like to. Mark C. Crowley, you have been a gift to the people who have had the chance to read your book, listen to your podcast, and follow your work. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation for Partnering Leadership. Thank you, Mark. I said at the beginning, Mahan, it was a pleasure and it was an indeed great pleasure. So thank you very much for doing this. You have been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.